Well, in case you wondered, we're going to be talking about Noah and the ark. It's a story, actually, that we teach our children from really the earliest moments, at least that I can remember in Sunday school, hearing the story of Noah and the ark. And when we teach it to our kids, we, we teach them the basics and not a lot of, of detail, but they know the basics of, of Noah and the ark, and that's, that's what's appropriate for children, but for us, when we grow up, we really need to look at some of those stories that we learned as a child and, and realize that, that they're not just stories, but rather there are things in them that relate to our faith. And as we grow in our faith, we need to grow in our understanding of how those stories relate to our lives. And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks as we look at the life of Noah. You, you'll notice I said life of Noah instead of the story of Noah. It, it Really, it's God's story. The life of Noah just happens to be a part of God's story. But the story is about God. We talked last week about the Bible being the Word of God, but it, it was also the story of God's pursuit of a prodigal people. So the life of Noah falls into that grand story uh, of God. We need to kind of go back to the beginning. The, the story of, or the life of Noah, actually, is told to us in Genesis chapter 6. But let's go back a little bit because I think we need to do some groundwork before we can really understand about this thing about Noah and, and the ark. We really need to go back to creation. God, we believe, made everything. He, he made everything that there is. He created it. And he created it out of nothing. Brought everything into being. And because of that... There are four basic principles related to the created beings that we need to kind of talk about before we really get into Noah. These four principles, there's the principle of existence. That means that, that God made all manner of beings, and not only did God make all manner of beings, but he determined the sphere in which they would exist. And they exist only as he chooses and survive only where he determines. For instance... Fish live in water. That's not by accident. God determined that fish would live in water. Human beings don't live in water. We would not survive in water. That's not our sphere in which we exist. Birds fly. All animals can't fly. God has determined all of this. Not only did he create the beings, not only did he bring them into existence, but he determined the sphere in which they would exist. Also, there's the principle of dependence. Because mankind, in spite of all his creativity, cannot create something out of nothing. Only God can do that. And because only God can do that, man, in spite of all his creativity, is dependent on God for the raw materials that he needs to be creative, but also to survive. There's the principle of obedience. Mankind functions best when it operates within the mandates of the Creator. In other words, when we follow God's laws and God's way of living and the way God wants us to live, that, that's when we operate, and that's when we uh, operate like we're supposed to. And it's, it's related to obedience. It's the principle of obedience. We are to be obedient. And if we're not obedient, that brings us to the fourth principle, and that's the principle of consequence. God's commands can't be disregarded. Uh, just a, 
an odd way to look at it, maybe, when you look at all four of these, as it gets to the last one about consequence. I said that God created everything and he determined the sphere in, in which they would exist. Birds fly. We can't fly. You can decide, I'm going to operate outside of God's intentions, so I'm going to go to Cooper's Rock and I'm going to fly off the top. There's going to be a consequence for you doing that. You're going to be injured or killed. But it also relates to, to the, the, the moral law and the way that God wants us to live. And when we violate that, when we're not obedient to live like God wants us to live, then there are consequences to that. And these principles, all four of them, were true at creation, and they are true today because God does not change. And these principles, because they are God's, are unchanging as well. Now, the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2, God creates man, and it says he's a reflection of God's image, but he also gives him the ability to distinguish between good and evil, and he gives him the ability to choose. And then in Genesis 3 and 4, we find out the terrible consequences when, when mankind made the wrong choices and when sin enters the world. And we find the terrible consequences there because the holy God is concerned. The holy God is concerned that we live according to the way he is set up for us to live. And so in Genesis 3 and 4, we find out the consequences of disobedience. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6... It begins rather ominously. It begins when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them they were the heroes of old men of renown before we talk about what God saw we need to make it clear that that God indeed saw that, that God was not just detached from his creation that God did not make his creation and suddenly just go away that, that he indeed saw what was going on in the world that he had created. And you need to look no further than these verses to, to realize that, that God is indeed concerned with what's going on in his creation. But God indeed sees and he perceives that mankind has severely deviated from his intention for them. Now, this passage about the sexual activities of the sons of God and the daughters of men is notoriously difficult to understand. Because we know what they were doing, we're just not really sure who they were. Now, the, the Nephilim, we're told, were giants. But the sons of God, that's a little different. The oldest theory believes that they were fallen angels. And because the expression, sons of God, is, is used, it's a common term used for, for angels. But those who can't imagine that that, that kind of sexual activity would actually uh, take place, some have said, well, no, they were actually the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. Or some have said, well, no, they were the aristocrats 
of the day and, and, and the commoners. Well, you can argue that all day long and, and miss the whole point of the story uh, because that's not really the, the, the point of the story. If you wonder which one maybe is best, though, I, I'm told, I'm not a language expert, but I'm told that somehow the angel theory has a lot of support with the language, but you can figure that out. But let's don't miss the point. Uh, the point being that there was a lot of deviance from what God had intended. And actually, later in verse 12, we find that there was also violence and corruption. So there's a sexual deviance, there's violence, and, and there's corruption. And it's obvious it's obvious from this passage. And I, and I don't even know if, if this is... I, I thought about this, actually, uh, because I got to this point in the first service, and I didn't know how to express it. Uh, to say God is displeased, <laughs> that's an understatement. Uh, it really is. It, it's hard for us to understand God's reaction to this. But it says in verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Not only did God perceive the action that was going on, not only did he see the action that was going on, but he could also see the motive. Stuart Briscoe has said that when it comes to the seen and the unseen, that the God's vision is always 20-20. It says the people's wickedness was great. That's what he saw. But then it says, in every inclination, which means every plan of their hearts, was only evil continually. This creation that God had made in his image, this creation that he had given the ability to choose, had chosen evil instead of good. And there's probably not a stronger statement in Scripture that I can think of about the sin of mankind, that his wickedness was great, and every plan, every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. So what happens? Sexual deviance, evil thoughts and actions, corruption, violence. And it says in verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Verse 6 is striking. God regretted, or he was sorrowful. His, his crowning part of creation, the only part of creation that is made in, in his image, and, and we come to this point where they have sinned so badly that, that God is grieved so much by their sin that, that he actually regrets or is sorrowful about the creation itself. Now, up to this point, mankind has experienced life. God brings the reality of life at creation. Mankind has experienced that. Because of disobedience, mankind has experienced sin and its consequences. That's another reality. And also, mankind has experienced death. But now, mankind is about to be confronted with two other realities. Judgment and grace. Listen to verse 7. So the Lord said... I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. 
for I regret that I have made them. God is determined not only to destroy the human race, but God is determined to destroy all the animals and the creatures that he has made. All of them. Except for one. Except for one. And if we are really going to understand this story of, of God's grief and, and of the judgment that is to come because of the sin... If we are going to understand that, we also have to understand it in the context of God's grace. Because God's heart is overflowing with love and his mercy and his grace. And in the midst of this terrible, this terrible situation that's on earth, in the midst of all the sin and all the violence and all the corruption that's going on, and when you look at the big picture, God, God sees it everywhere. It's so bad. It is so bad that he's going to destroy everything. But the God of love and the God of mercy and the God of grace looks down and verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you couple that with the verse, he says, For I regret that I have made them. That's the way he ends up verse 7. But then he gets to verse 8 and says, But Noah found, grace, found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. It says Noah found favor. If you want to say Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, that's fine. So how? How? Well, in a, in a wicked and evil world... Noah chose to be obedient. He did. He, he chose to live like God wanted him to live. It didn't matter. All this other stuff going on around him. Noah chose. He made a conscious decision to live for God. Noah stood his ground. He remained uninfluenced by what was going on around him. The word righteous simply means that, that he accepted God's righteous standard for his life. It doesn't imply perfection. But basically that Noah had decided that regardless of what everyone else was doing, he was going to live. He was going to choose. God had given him that choice. He chose to live a righteous life. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, this is an interesting story. This is the end of it. God looks down. He sees all that's going on. He says he's going to destroy it. But there's Noah. Noah's a great guy. Noah's living like he should. Noah finds grace. End of story. Not quite. Remember, I said that the Bible is a story of God's pursuit, and, and it's consistent from, from beginning to end, and and the idea that, that God is, is up to something. And, and you can't just take this little part of Scripture maybe and just separate it from everything else. Let's, let's jump over. Let's jump over to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Skip all the way over there. Jesus is talking to the people about his coming a second time. The, the idea that Jesus is going to die on the cross... He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to ascend back to heaven with a promise that he's going to come again. 
And so he says in Matthew 24, beginning verse 36, he says, But about that day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What in the world is he talking about? As it was in the days of Noah, why in the world would he bring all of that into it? Well, certainly, maybe he's saying that in the days of Noah, things were just going along, just... Everybody was just going about their business. Everybody was oblivious. And that's probably what he means, that, that in the days of Noah, people were just going about their business. They had no clue about what was going to happen. But let's look at things. Let's look at the reality. What was going on in the days of Noah? There was sexual deviance. There was evil. There was corruption. There was violence. What's going on today? There's sexual deviance, there's evil, there's corruption, and there's violence. Now, I, I, I'm not suggesting that, that, that Jesus is really saying that, that when things become exactly like they were in Noah's time, that that's, no, that's not what he's, what he's saying, but, but, it, but it does make us think that have things just gotten worse or things really not changed that much since the time of Noah. But we can't, we can't ignore the fact of what's going on today. And about how people today, in spite of all of this that's going on around them, just kind of going about their business. You hear so much on TV about crazy stuff going on. You do. That, that somehow it's easy to just, just kind of forget about it. Or, or just ignore it. There is violence. Every time you turn on the TV, there's something violent happens. And you get to the point where you're almost numb to it. You hear about the evil in the world. You hear about the terrorists. You hear about all of the stuff going on. And it's real easy for us to just kind of become numb to it. But, but the whole world has become numb to it. And, and, and the idea that in Noah's day, with all of this stuff going on, they had become numb to it and were just kind of going around oblivious to the fact that because of their sin, God was going to bring that judgment on them. But listen to what Peter says describing the Lord's return. In 2 Peter 3, beginning verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought, ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. 
The day of the Lord, talking about God's judgment, and it's used in reference to Christ's return. And he says it's going to be a terrible and sudden experience. But for those who are living for God, it's not going to be that way. We're going to be, it's not going to catch us by surprise because we're looking for it. And we're living our lives. And we know that, that when he does come again, that we, we go to be with him. But it's the whole idea, it goes way back to what I said at the beginning. The idea of obedience and consequence, those principles. It was true with Noah. Noah was obedient. He found favor. The people of the earth were disobedient, and they found God's judgment in the flood. That same principle is true. That the end is coming. That Christ is going to return. It's going to happen. And for those who are ready, it's going to be a great time. A great day. For those who are not, it's going to be a terrible day. Not because of some vengeful God but because of God who's staying true to the principle. Obedience brings with it favor. Disobedience does not. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, very simply, we need to be obedient. Well, what does that look like? Well, for, for us who, who are Christians, the Bible... We need to follow it. We need to apply it to our lives. We need, need to live as God wants us to live. We need to live as the Bible tells us we need to live. That, that's what we need to do. But in doing so, if we really do that, in our day and age, we become like Noah. If Noah was the only one standing firm in this terrible, corrupt society that he lived in, I'm sure he stood out. And I'm sure people ridiculed him. And I'm sure people made fun of him. And I know the temptation has to be great. If you're the only one doing it, the temptation is to, well, I'll just blend in. But that's not what we're to do. We are to be obedient. We are to live like God wants us to live. We are to stand out in a world that is corrupt. We are in the world, obviously. But we want to be distinctive from the world because we're living for God. Now, when you do that, people might make fun of you. When you do that, people will try to get you to change. But if you want to be pleasing to God, you need to be obedient and you need to stand out. It's one of those things that you kind of almost have to ask yourself, where's the line? I, I mean, think about it. it. It's I don't know how you draw it necessarily or how you envision it. But you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the line is here. And, and you know to cross that line is, is to cross from living an obedient life for God to living a life that's not. 
and we live way close to that line a lot of times. And what I find is, then when we step over it, what happens? We tend to <laughs> move the line. And then we step over it again, and we move it a little farther. And the next thing we know, there is no difference between us and the world. So where is the line that, that God has drawn? It's there. You'll know when you're close to it, and you'll know when you stepped over it. But God wants us to be obedient. We also need to realize the urgency of evangelism. Evangelism is, a, is an old term that, that we don't use much anymore. If we use it, we think of Billy Graham Crusades uh, on TV. Basically, it's just sharing your faith with others. Telling others about Jesus and what he's done in your life. When I read what Peter writes, it tells me that there's an urgency about telling other people about Christ. And it's an urgency that I don't think we take very seriously a lot of times because we've gotten lulled into the same thing that the rest of the world has. We just go about our lives. We do. We're Christians. We gave our life to Christ. We're going to heaven when we die. Okay, we're all set, so we're just going to go about our daily lives and wait for it to happen. We, we get lulled into forgetting that there are others out there who are not, and that there are others out there that the Bible is very clear that we are to go everywhere and make disciples, that we are to share our faith. And so, are we content to just say, well, we're all set. Everybody else can fend for themselves. I don't think so. The only reason that verse from 2 Peter should scare us as Christians is just the idea of so many people that may not end up where we end up because we didn't share our faith with them. And I don't know about you, but I'm not real content with that. And a lot of people will say, well, <laughs> they got theirs or they're going to get theirs. That's not the heart of God. And when we say, well, you know, they had it coming to them. I knew they'd get it. That's not in the heart of God either. Nowhere, nowhere is that in the heart of God. That a world is corrupt, and a world is evil, and a world is violent, and a world is full of all kinds of deviance. And it grieves the heart of God. And it should grieve ours as well. Nowhere, nowhere. Does God want anyone to get theirs? Listen to what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. In other words, He's not dragging His feet about returning. He says, No, He is being patient for your sake. 
He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. It gave God no pleasure in Noah's day to bring judgment. None. No pleasure at all. What would have made the heart of God glad is if they'd all repented. It does not please the heart of God today for anybody to get theirs or to get what's coming to them. What makes the heart of God glad is when people repent. And what makes him smile is when we are a part of that. So today, there are two things we need to do. One, you need to make sure of where you are in your faith. And if you're not living for God and not living an obedient life, then you need to, to pray and, and you and God need to take care of that. But if you're living in, in such a way that you really don't care about the rest of the world and don't have an urgency that God has of wanting everyone to come to repentance, then maybe you need to pray about that today too. And maybe you and God need to have some long conversations about that. Because God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Let's pray.